Amen. Thank you for that worship and leading us to the throne of grace to prepare our hearts for feeding upon the word of God. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, would you join me in 1 John, the book of 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 5 down through chapter 2 and verse 2. The burden of my message today is to end up in a place where we understand what we have in Jesus, what we have in him. And so let's read together 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, down through chapter 2 and verse 2. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the whole world. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that your name would be magnified through your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear beautiful things in your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move us not just to hear the word, but to do what the word says, to trust in its counsel and its truth as you have inspired it for us. And King Jesus, we ask you that in all things you would be lifted up, that you would draw all people to yourself. In your great name we pray, amen and amen. I'm so thankful for the invitation to preach in chapel. Thanks to Dr. Greenway for extending this to me for Dr. Skog, the very kind introduction that you gave. No pressure about the message to be delivered today from God's word. I'm so grateful to have a very dear friend of mine here from Los Angeles, Ruben Reyes, uh, who works with the North American Mission Board there, and it's just a joy to have you here uh, today. My students, I'm so thankful to see many of you sitting out there, and I'm glad that you're here. And I just wanna say a special word of thanks so those of you that blew all of your skips early in the semester so that you had to be here today for this one. That is not lost on me. So glad you're here. And for those of you online, we're glad that you could join us as well. And I love God's word and I hope that that's clear. So my students know that in, our, in my classes, I can typically teach for an hour and 15 minutes on one page of notes. But I have 10 pages for my sermon. So you do the math. I'm kidding, we're not gonna be here that long. I don't know about you, but by show of hands, I wonder how many of us are afraid of the dark. 
And it's not so much that we're, I got a few out there, not so much we're just afraid of the dark, but really we're afraid of what's in the dark. If you knew that there were puppies and cotton candy and whatever else in the dark, you wouldn't be afraid to go in the dark, would you? But you're afraid of what's in the dark. I wonder if I was to change that question to you today, how many of us are afraid of the light? How many of us are afraid to go into the light? Probably none of us because we see what's there before us and unless we have a migraine or something and we wanna avoid light, the light is fine. But yet in the text we recognize that the light produces for us something for which we ought to fear God and to see ourselves in its blinding brilliance. And I love that John begins in this section of scripture with good theological method. He starts first with God, he tells us something about God, then he tells us something about us, and then he gets us to Christ. And that's what I wanna do from this text this morning. Look at verse five, this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. John is saying, this is not my own opinion, this is what I heard from the lips of King Jesus when we sat at his feet as he taught us specifically and the crowds, we've heard this, and this is what Jesus taught us, that God is light, and in him is absolutely no darkness at all. He is absolutely pure. He is absolutely true. He is absolutely righteous. He is absolutely holy. And because of that, we must see ourselves in light of this. That's why John says, we're gonna declare this to you. What he heard from the mouth of Christ that Jesus said, after he went away, he's gonna give the Spirit. They're gonna, the Spirit's gonna lead you into all truth. The Spirit's gonna remind you of everything that I have spoken to you so that you can give it away to others. And John said, this is it. God is light, and in him is no darkness. You think about what Dr. Skog read earlier from 1 Timothy 6, that God lives in unapproachable light. It is blinding. Psalm 104, verses one and two say, my soul bless the Lord. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are robed with majesty and splendor. God wraps himself in light as if it were a garment. And here we live as if we are stumbling in darkness so often. But now, you and I who've been born again, we are no longer of the kingdom of darkness but we're of the kingdom of light. We're no longer children of the darkness. We're children of the light. So we should walk in his light. This God who is light, James tells us, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. There is no shadow in God. He is pure light. I want you to notice what he says about us as well in these verses. He presents it through three spurious claims that some might make as it relates to sin. The first is, in verse six, we, if we say or if we claim, we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. You know, there's a way in which sin causes us to lie to others. And I don't know about you, but in a seminary community, college community, where our whole environment is filled with Christian things all the time, we kind of live in a little bubble of things, and it's great, and we love it, we can, if we're not careful, present ourselves outwardly differently than what we're doing internally. And if people who know us close enough, they can see whether or not our walk matches our talk, and behind the scenes, are we the same person in private as we are in public? 
How is this working? We can lie to ourselves if we say we have fellowship with the God who is unapproachable light, that we walk in his light, and yet my life demonstrates that I'm walking in sin and darkness. These two things cannot go together. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, what fellowship can light have with darkness? It can't. There cannot be. And John makes this bold statement that if you're walking in sin and claiming to walk with Jesus, claiming to walk in the light of God's fellowship, here's the thing. You're lying. You're lying to others. You're lying to yourself. And you're not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light, he says, verse 7, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I want to be able to trust that when I'm surrounding myself with a community of God's people, those that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that we are striving forward together, not because we are perfect and without sin, but because we recognize sin for what it is, and we're, we're chasing after God when his light exposes all of those things with us. Listen, the worst thing that you can do when it comes to sin is run from God. Run to God. Is not what he says in, in verse nine. If we come to him and we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we are the children of God, let's run to him, run through our shame, run through our guilt and our fear into the blazing light of God because we know that it's gonna expose us and we acknowledge it and we confess it so he can cleanse it. You know what that produces? That produces fellowship between us. Too much division exists, and I just wonder, I just wonder how much of it is because people are claiming to have fellowship with God, but they walk in darkness, and we don't have that kind of fellowship. A second spurious claim that he makes is in verse 8, that if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You know, whereas sin may cause us to lie to others, sin will also cause us to lie to ourselves. It's fascinating to me that in the Greek that if we have no sin, that sin is singular. We have no sin. You know, there's, there's a problem if we don't admit, first and foremost, that by nature we are sinners in need of a Savior. And frankly, so much of the people that we're trying to reach locally and globally may not have this understanding or admission that they are separated from God because they are a sinner. And first... The first step to getting to the Savior is recognizing that I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Listen, we're not good enough, smart enough, creative enough, strong enough to save ourselves. There's no way we can pull ourselves with our bootstraps. There's no way we could initiate through this mountainous guilt of sin that wrecks us from the very, the very beginning of our lives all the way until we trust Jesus in redemption. We cannot get to him. He's gotta to get to us. And thanks be to God that he does. Isn't it fascinating that the other world religions will, will tell you what you must do to get to God? But it's Christianity that tells us what God has done to get to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we can get to him in this way. Romans chapter three reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John says, if we confess our sins, now we're getting somewhere. Walking in the light means admitting 
agreeing together, saying the same thing, that God's verdict on us is a sinner who needs grace and salvation, and we admit and acknowledge that I am that sinner that needs grace and forgiveness. And so when I come to him, I've got to admit that. I've got to acknowledge that. I've got to confess that, that I am a sinner, that I have sins, and what I'll find in that moment is that God is faithful. And this is not just new to the, to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God was faithful too. And God was faithful to forgive if repentance was there and heart direction was changing as you make your way through the progression of the Old Testament. You recognize more and more and more how God is not just about divine discipline and immediate judgment, but that he's working toward a new covenant to replace a stony heart with a heart of flesh to take out this problem and put a new heart within us. And he promises that this is gonna be through forgiveness. He's gonna do this to forgive us. Jeremiah 31, that text of the new covenant, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. That's what we need. And there is a fountain that's filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And there may I, though vile as the vilest among us, can wash all my sins away. A third spurious claim is that God causes, sin causes us to make God a liar. Look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. If we deny that we're sinners, we make him a liar. And I don't know about you, but I would not want to be found in that sentence. And we live in a culture, especially American society, where Man, we try, we, try to, we try to name everything that's wrong with us without naming sin. Maybe this is a biological problem. Maybe this is a psychological problem. Maybe this is a behavioral problem. Maybe this is something else that's working its way through us. But the text is telling us that we cannot say we have not sinned. We've got to admit this, come to him, and that's where we'll find this forgiveness. And worse than that, if you persist in that idea that my problem is something else, my problem is not sin, you're making God a liar, the the glorious, majestic God of the Father of lights who says to you in his brilliance that you are a sinner and exposes your sin, but you say, no, I've not sinned. You're making God a liar and the truth is not in us. Man, that isn't, his word is not in us. Look, look at that, his word, his logos is not in us. What an amazing thing to say. But I would rather stand with the scripture that says, let God be true and every man a liar. There is no one righteous, not even one. It is impossible for God to lie. So if he's doing this, John is saying, let's say that his word is in us and we're gonna trust and agree with him that we have sin. And to use maybe our terminology, if we claim we've not sinned, there's no way to know Jesus. There's no way that you're saved. If you don't deal with a sin problem, you can't know the sin remedy. It's fascinating to me that actor and director Woody Allen is a well-known atheist. On one occasion, he was asked the question, if there is a God, and if that God should speak to you, what would you most want to hear him say? And his reply, if there is a God who should speak to me, I would most want to hear him say these three words. It's coming from an atheist. He says, I wanna hear him say, you are forgiven. Friends, we can't do that without an admission of sin. This is our problem. 
We can't do this without something done for us on our behalf through Jesus. And here is the final burden of my message. What we have in Jesus in chapter two, verses one and two, is we have an advocate and we have an atoning sacrifice. And he says, look, I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you, my little children, by the way, if you go to chapter two, verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. But he's writing to them, chapter two, verse one, to say, I hope that you don't sin. I'm writing so that you may not sin, that you won't get into sin. And then notice that next phrase, but if anyone sins, if anyone does sin. On the surface of things, this can be kind of confusing, can't it? Because if you go more into the epistle of 1 John, you'll recognize in a couple of places that John says, if you are born again, you cannot sin. And if you sin, you don't know God. So what in the world is John doing? Is John you know, kind of bipolar on this issue? No. John is saying right here, if any of us commits an act of sin, in those verses, if any of us lives consistently through a habitual practice of sin, you can't know God. If you're a Greek nerd, right here, this is an aorist subjunctive. Over there is a present indicative. If you, if you commit sin, if you happen to commit sin, there's forgiveness if you admit it. But if you're over here saying, look, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna live in sin, I'm gonna walk in darkness, guess what? You don't know God because the gospel transforms us. And it's rooted in what we have in Jesus as an advocate and an atoning sacrifice. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. It's an interesting word that John uses, parakleton, there. It's only used by John in in another place, that is the Gospel of John, where he refers to the Holy Spirit from the words of Jesus, that Jesus says, it's better for me to go away and I'll send you another parakleton. Meaning he's the paracleton. He is the original primary paracleton. But I'm going to go away from you and I'm going to send the spirit who is going to be your counselor, your comforter. He's going to be your advocate. He's going to come alongside you. He's going to do all of this to encourage you and to spur you on to true gospel, effective ministry. He's going to remind you of everything, convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's going to do this and it's better for me to go away so I send him. But John returns to this and he says, we have a paracleton with the father. We have an advocate. Some might say that this advocate is coming out of um, a legal setting, more like a courtroom setting. Some have tried to see in this uh, term that an advocate is like an attorney or a lawyer. And that's a real technical sense, but I think the relational sense of that is probably more pronounced in John's mind, that we have counsel for the defense. You can even translate this as a mediator, an intercessor that comes for us on our behalf. So if we are in the blinding presence of God, we are sinners and we have sinned, and what are we gonna do if we sin? We retreat ourselves back to the basis of our cleansing to begin with, that Jesus died for us. He's the one who mediates for us, intercedes for us, helps us, stands alongside us in our defense, and I I know that um, he will never lose a case. You know why? He's the righteous one. All that he did in his active obedience to the Father and obeying the law and pleasing him in the things he said and the things that he did, that Jesus is the righteous one. 
impeccable, without sin. Multiple times the New Testament tells us that he did not sin. There was no sin in him. So when he stands in our defense, he stands uniquely different than us as one who is qualified. Qualified to represent us. Qualified to be our substitute with the Father. Because after all, it is his righteousness that is ours now. Our sin in the gospel and in justification when we are saved, our sin is imputed to Christ. It is given to Christ. His righteousness is imputed to us. We are literally clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And when the Father sees us, he sees us through his Son. So you wanna know why you have an advocate because the Father looks at you and he sees his Son and his Son is righteous and he is qualified. And the Father will never reject his counsel. And he will never lose a case. There's no chance that what he urges in God's presence will be rejected as if it fails to measure up to any standard because this intercessor is of holy, true, righteous character, just like God who is light. And if you wanna make a biblical connection to John's other writings, Jesus himself said that I am the light of the world John said in John chapter one of the gospel that he is light and in him was the life of, for men. He brings light to us because Jesus is not just any other man. He is the God man, fully God in one person, two natures. He is, he is all that we need for us and for our salvation, truly human, truly divine. That's why he can stand in our place to redeem us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we sin, and John says a little bit later on, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and we will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. Guess what? God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. And what he's done for us in Christ and what we have in Christ is an advocate, but he doesn't stop there. He continues in verse two that we also have an atoning sacrifice. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Look what he says. He himself is the hilasmos for our sins and not only our sins, but also for those of the whole world. Wow. We have a sacrifice in Christ. Not only is he an advocate, but Jesus is the payment for our sin. Now, I'd like to think about this verse, chapter two, verse two, in three senses before we tie a bow on the sermon and we go eat lunch. How about that? Three senses. I want to think about 1 John 2, 2, first of all, semantically. So, helasmos in New Testament studies is somewhat debated in how it's translated. Uh, I prefer the translation of propitiation for this word, but there is another translation called expiation when it comes to this word. And this is, um, you know, this is a, a debate, and it's important, and New Testament scholars know, and ultimately, what are we getting at in two senses here semantically? The question is whether or not this atoning sacrifice stemming from what the Old Testament presented to us in all of the sacrificial system of Leviticus forward, what is happening in this atonement? Is an, an angry God who is rightful in his judgment to bring wrath upon us, is this God who's gonna punish our sins, is he assuaged by this sacrifice? 
Does this sacrifice deal with the wrath for our sin? Is it diverted? Or as, is it an expiation? Is what this sacrifice intended to do simply wipe away our sins? To uh, We're not dealing with this idea of an angry God against sin. No, 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 we just need cleansing and we're gonna wipe it away. And I think there is, in this atoning sacrifice, of course we have expiation. He's talked about many times the blood of Jesus cleansing us from all sin, wiping away sin. So we don't deny that, but the heart of this is there is a God who is holy and righteous who is light. We are sinners through and through, and he has given us a payment through his son that is a propitiation for our sins. What wrath we deserved for sin. What condemnation that our sins earned before the Father was laid upon Christ so that by his stripes we are healed. So that we can have status as those adopted into the family of God. He did this for us. So I would say, and you may disagree and that's fine, but I would say the heart of this is propitiation that he's bearing the wrath of God for our sins in his body on the tree. Let's think about this theologically, not just semantically, but theologically. What's happening in verse two, where he is not an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world, theologically. If this propitiation is taking place through Jesus on the cross, with respect to the Father, because the propitiation is meant to propitiate one who is angry and wrathful. So what is happening in this theologically? Is Jesus, um, is Jesus a hypothetical savior for the world? Or has he secured our salvation by his atoning sacrifice? Is it hypothetical? Only and something else has to bring it to pass for us, or has he secured it in his sacrifice? Some who would see in this verse a general or universal or unlimited atonement would assume that he died not for our sins, but also for those of the whole world to be read as those who are every person without exception, every individual that has ever lived. That is the reading of a general universal atonement for this verse. It's interesting to me that a New Testament professor here at Swibitz, Curtis Vaughn, said in his commentary on 1 John that you can't read this verse to mean that Jesus propitiated all the sins of every people because that would be universalism. I agree with Curtis Vaughn. Because if Jesus bore our wrath in our place as a penal substitute, then what grounds is there for condemnation, ultimately? Now, I'm not talking about the application of the Spirit that brings sinners into the kingdom through conversion of salvation. That is a We're talking about the atonement itself. Was it hypothetical or was it real and actual? So for those that probably lean into more of a limited or specific, particular, definite atonement, you know, can you do anything with this verse? Some would object, but some might say something like, um, maybe Tom Schreiner does in his 
work in 1 John. He's saying what we're seeing here is that he died not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the, old wor- the whole world. That is not just for Jews, but also for Gentiles. And some say, well, that's ridiculous, isn't it? That's not what he's saying here at all. Well, think about John, John's gospel, John 11 and verse, verses 50, 49 through 52. Listen, listen to the language and the comparison between 11, 52, and 1 John 2, 2. One of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God around the world. It's a very interesting connection, isn't it? So some might say, um, for me, this is a universal atonement in the sense that the world has one savior, not just Jews limited to Jesus, the Jew, the true Israel, laying down his life for Israel only, but also for the scattered children of God all around the world from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, theologically. And it really doesn't matter, honestly. I think you can make arguments for both sides of this atonement debate as I did in class on Tuesday. And wherever you fall in that, here's where we must agree on this issue. We must agree that the world has no other savior. There is one mediator between God and man, man Christ Jesus. There is only one name under heaven given to people whereby they must be saved. There is no other way, there is no other savior, there is no other possibility, no other opportunity. It's only through Jesus who is the gate for the sheep and if the sheep hear him, they will come into the fold. We can say there is only one savior and that's why John repeats over and over and over again, he does in chapter four, verse 14, that we have the savior of the world, look in 14, we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son as the world's savior. Look in chapter four, verse 10. This is what love consists of. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the propitiation for our sins. If anyone's gonna be saved, it's gonna be through Jesus. And so we think about the semantics here, propitiation, expiation. We think about this theologically, where you come down interpretively on that doesn't really matter, Jesus is the only savior. Let's think about this missiologically. What do we do with this? Tuesday, the president of the International Mission Board reminded us that every single day, 157,690 people enter a Christless eternity. Many of them are from people groups that have no access to the gospel, never even heard of Jesus, don't have a Bible, so many of those things. You and I should be burdened for this. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, that great passage on the suffering of Jesus on the cross. He says in there, in the King James, that this suffering servant will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And if we have any inclination from Romans 5 and Romans 7 that he is a ransom, he ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, then missiologically, we cannot sit in this little glory bubble and not go tell them about the propitiation that God has put forward. And you'll see two things when you do this. 
Doesn't matter if it's at Dwell Coffee Shop down here in the road or if it's on the other side of the planet, you'll see two things happen when you preach the gospel. Some will smell the aroma of life that is, that is Christ and they will be drawn to him and they will come in faith and repentance to Jesus. Some will smell the aroma of death and say that is foolish to me and I want nothing, I want nothing to do with it. Nothing at all. And to go back to what Dr. Chitwood said from Numbers chapter 21 and John chapter three with the bronze serpent and Jesus lifted up on the pole, here's what you'll find. There are some people who would rather persist with their poison and perish than look to the sacrifice and be saved by an all-sufficient Savior. And that should break us. And so just listen, when we go to share the gospel and we go around the world to make disciples of all nations, um, don't worry about, because it's not your it's not your issue anyway. Don't worry about whom God has chosen and whom he hasn't. Don't worry about the debate on if Jesus died for everybody or for the elect only. Don't, don't worry about that. You go and lift up the bread of life and if people feed on him, we will know that God has saved his people. John tells us Jesus is gonna do this. John chapter six, in the 40s, he says, this is the reason the Father sent me and I've come to do the Father's will. Here's what it is, you ready? I've come to do the Father's will that I will lose none of those that he's given me, but I'll raise them up on the last day. And you think, well, Jesus, that's, that's awfully exclusivistic. Yes, it is. But the next verse, Jesus says, and this is the will of my Father, that everyone who comes to me, I will in no way cast out, but I will raise them up on the last day. You know what Jesus is doing? He's giving us good theology. He's gonna see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. All that the Father has given him will be saved. Your mission and your evangelism is 100% successful because God has purpose in it. And perception, it breaks our hearts when people reject Christ. It breaks our hearts when people turn away in their sin. It breaks our hearts when they won't look to the Savior and be healed and be saved. And John says the reason why they do that is because men love darkness more than they love light. And they'd rather persist with their poison and be saved. To bring it all full circle, here's the bow, and I gotta let you go. If anyone sins, we have, we have. Not we hope to, we have an advocate. We have a propitiation. So friends, look, someday when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we consider our sins in his holy presence, who's gonna stand in defense of your sin? Are you? Are you gonna, you gonna roll the dice on that? You're gonna think like so many people do in our own culture and our world that I'm good enough, that I'm gonna make it. I might be by the skin of my teeth, but I'm gonna make it because I've not done all the bad things that the world's done. Are we gonna gamble on something like that? Are we gonna stand up there like that sinner who beat his breast and say, I am unworthy and I'm a sinner and God have mercy on me and King Jesus, who is also a judge, he is gonna stand in our defense and say, this one is paid for. And they have trusted in me. They looked to me lifted up and they were paid for. Their account is clear. Don't listen to this 
accuser. Don't listen to this deceiver who tries to remind you of all the things that they messed up when they claimed to be a Christian and still fell into sin and did some stuff. Yep, that's true, but guess what? I propitiated for that, Holy Father. And he won't lose that. So are you gonna stand in defense of your own sins or will you look to the advocate? And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be responsible to pay for my own sins. It's too much. It's too much of a burden. Can't do it. Can't satisfy God's holy character, his holy law. Can't do it. I don't want to get before him at the end of all things and think I can pay for what I can't pay for. My debt is too great. But he wiped it away. And trust in that propitiation that satisfies the wrath of God against my sin. And by trusting in his name and turning from sin, that all that is true of Christ is now true of me. And he who is the righteous one, guess what? That we'll stand before him complete and righteous because we're united to him by faith. Amen?